or a pie taste-off contest, whatever he would like. He's bringing a pie from Stanton. John's a character, man. I like that guy. All right, guys, we're going to rock and roll here when this show starts. We have Mayor Lloyd Snook in the house. We have Councillor Michael Payne in the house. Both gentlemen um, seeking re-election. Both gentlemen have brought um, order and, and a sense of uh, what, what do we use? common sense to local government here in their first term. And they are two of four men running for three open seats. I guess it's going to be determined in the June primary, right? I mean, we figure out. We you know never it. know. You never know. Okay, because you're saying an independent could mm-hmm. yeah, spring right. up. Right, okay. Right now, everyone that's running is a Democrat. I believe so. Everyone okay. who's announced. Okay, got it, got it. So questions, comments, put them in the feed. We'll relay them live on air as long as they're um, respectful. We don't mind some challenge, but they've got to certainly follow the golden rule, please. Um, as Sister Juliana used to tell me at Catholic school, Jerry, the golden rule, the golden rule, the golden rule. She also would say at the dance, leave room for the Holy Spirit. <laughs> I, I broke that rule often. Sister Juliana, you are still an influence on my life. Uh, we can rock and roll, my friend, when you're ready. Good Friday morning, guys. My name is Jerry Miller, and welcome to Real Talk with Keith Smith. Thank you kindly for joining us on the I Love Seville Network, a show presented today by Yes Realty Partners. Find them online, yesrealtypartners.com. Today's program, I think, is going to be educational, enlightening, entertaining. Um, Lloyd Snook is in the house. Michael Payne's in the house. A lot of respect for these two guys. Don't always agree on everything, but I have tremendous respect for these two guys who've brought order and common sense and and just a sense of consistency to local government that everyone was certainly hoping and yearning for. Judah Wickhauer is the director. If we could go to the studio camera and the foreshot and welcome the gentlemen, Keith Smith, Michael Payne, Lloyd Snow. These guys need no introduction. I, this guy, I know how he thinks here. I got to give him props on his haircut or he's going to ask me, why didn't you give me props on your, you look sharp. Thank you very haircut much. Haircut looks good. I was actually really disappointed. I walked in, normally <laughs> you say something, hey, nice haircut. You look great, Keith. I also trimmed the muscle because we're going to have a oh, mustache conversation mustache. a little bit later on. The bet. So, the bet, because there's a bet going on that you two gentlemen should be aware of. Uh, well, I'll make, we'll make you aware of it. But, you know, thank you very much for doing this. Thank you for showing up. I know, um, as Lloyd said to me the other day, um, I'm doing a little bit less lawyering and a lot more uh, politicking <laughs> when we bumped into each other the other day. So I know your guys' schedules are super busy. So um, I know we've got questions coming in, but I want to just kind of so kick... Nice. Kick it off real quick. Tell us the state of Charlottesville, right? Let's give us a great, a great quick pickup on where we're at with the state, the health of Charlottesville from a budgetary perspective. Because you guys are just about to wrap that up before we get into the mustache and housing. <laughs> well, uh, certainly almost as important as the mustache Thank you. Is, Thank the, you. Is, is the city budget. Uh, and the way the process works, of course, is the city manager prepares the budget, gives it to us. At this point, it was about a month ago. And then we have a series of meetings and hearings, and we, we learn what people are talking about and thinking about. 
the time that we will actually do our heavy lifting is between today and, August, and April 6th because on April 6th is when we are basically going to distill all of the various changes that people have suggested to us and by the end of the meeting on April 6th we will have a version that we expect to officially, we'll, we'll have the first reading of it on April 6th, we'll actually adopt it on April 11th. There might be a couple of tweaks between the 6th and the 11th, but that's pretty rare. So uh, this, is, this week is really the time when we're going to be working hard on trying to, to balance these different requests. Mm -hmm. So we've, we've been talking a lot on the show about, you know, appraisals, uh, assessments, excuse me, increasing and all that. So when are the folks going to know how much they're paying? How much did their taxes go up? When I think that? you wanted to add something there oh, sorry, after Michael. Mayor Snook. Well, yeah, well, well, and to answer that question, assessment, uh, I believe assessment data has already come out and it people has. have been notified. Yeah. Um, there is an average increase this year of something around 15%, I want to say. And, um, uh, of course, varying neighborhood by neighborhood. Um, to, to just build off what Lloyd said in general, I think... Um, you know, the state of Charlottesville government is um, a lot of, you know, I think hopefully government functioning a little bit better, but for a purpose. Um, you know, stability, but for what? And we're doing a lot of work on implementing the affordable housing strategy, the zoning rewrite, the implementing the climate action plan, doing strategic planning, about to start, you know, the uh, search for a permanent city manager and making that decision. So it's a lot of things all at once, but a lot of um, important policy stuff, collective bargaining is in there as well. So it's really been um, exciting to see us really making actual policy progress on a lot of things. Very well said. All right, so many questions coming in. Guys, put the questions in the feed. I'll relay, relay them live on air. I have some questions myself. Both gentlemen running for re-election. What would you guys think are like the three to five most important platform points come this election cycle uh, versus last election cycle? It seems to me it's gun violence. It seems to me it's upzoning. It seems to me it's what? Well, certainly zoning, the, the whole zoning rewrite and affordable housing are interrelated. I don't try to, to, to distinguish them. Related, related to both of those is climate change, and related to all three of those is a, a sort of a deeper dive into transit. Uh, ultimately, I think we're going to find when we get some tr uh, increased transit activity, probably about two, three years from now, we're going to find that that holds the key to how we make uh, increased density work better in Charlottesville. It's how we do, uh, cut our, our carbon footprint for transportation, which is one of the largest uh, contributors of greenhouse gases to the area. It's how we deal with affordable housing in general, because it, I mean, the, the old notion uh, that housing affordability is related to transportation affordability. You know, I've heard you all talk about you drive till you qualify. Well, if you can, if you can get an affordable uh, residence that is right on a bus line, suddenly it becomes a lot more doable for you to live there, and it doesn't have to be in downtown Charlottesville. When I said this four years ago, people said, oh, he just wants to bus all the poor people to the county. No, what I want to do is I want to make more places more affordable, and those places can't be all in the city of Charlottesville. So those, those issues are all interrelated to me. What do you think, Michael Payne? Well, I mean, big picture things, you know, people talk about every election, uh, affordable housing, schools, climate change, um, and... Uh, 
you know, that's big picture. But when you drill down into some of the specific stuff we're working on, I think it's um, implementing the affordable housing strategy, a component of that, which is finishing our zoning rewrite and uh, finishing in a way that has the most positive impact on uh, affordability in housing. Um, you've got preparing for resident-led redevelopment of West Haven, which I think will be a, a critical project for the city over the next several years. Um, implementing the climate action plan, of which there's several studies related to our um, natural gas utility, electrification of um, uh, the city's uh, uh, vehicle fleet. You've got, um, uh, as Lloyd mentioned, the regional transit vision and regional transit governance study and figuring out how we're going to begin to implement those to strengthen our uh, transportation system. And Overall, I think figuring out how our city and our community recovers from the fallout of both the pandemic and inflation, which kind of goes through everything, um, employee salaries, teacher salaries, um, the cost of uh, investments we've already made in infrastructure and figuring that out. So um, I think those are some of the concrete things. And of course, public safety and gun violence has been um, uh, much more of a topic this time than we were running the first time because there's been a surge in gun violence. And I think um, there's a lot of things in that conversation, some of which I think are investments in neighborhoods, figuring out what opportunities there are to invest in youth mentorship, job opportunities, and thinking, you know, bigger picture, what's going wrong in some of our neighborhoods that is um, leading to this surge in gun violence and not, uh, you know, settling for easy answers there. But, you know, there's no, there's no one easy answer or one policy solution, unfortunately, um, um, on that issue. And uh, let me build on something that Michael touched on a couple times. One is the notion of implementation. Okay, we, we have started a lot of things in the last year, two, three. Uh, we have, and a large part of what we need to do is to start implementing some of these plans. We've got a climate action plan needs to get implemented. We've got an affordable housing plans got to get implemented. So that's an important part of it. We also, you know, frankly, when I ran four years ago, one of the things that I said was that I wanted to make Charlottesville work again. And I think that we are rebuilding the city government and we're getting people, we have an excellent uh, core from the, the interim city manager to the deputy city managers. Uh, James Freeze and Neighborhood Development Services has made a huge, huge change over there. So there's a lot of improvement coming in a lot of ways. We've got more work to do, and we, but rebuilding the city workforce, rebuilding uh, the, the structures in City Hall is something that is underway and needs to continue. I also want to touch on something else, the, 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 the question of KTEC, uh, where we've committed to buying KTEC from the county. Uh, and one of the things that I think we most need to do is to develop a comprehensive workforce development strategy for the city. I've said that I think that we need to commit that if anybody gets through 12 years of Charlottesville schools, they need to come out with either a pathway to college or a trade. And if we, and that we need to make that an important priority so that, for example, we can have somebody trained to be a, a plumbing technician so that they can get a good job either with a plumbing service company here or University of Virginia is lo always looking for people. They're down like 2,500 employees. And a lot of those are entry-level positions that they just can't hire for. Uh, there is some Section 3 
kinds of job opportunities that we ought to be pressing for. Section 3, for the benefit of folks who don't know, is the provision that says in federally funded projects, uh, the city could have the, the could have the power to say we're going to condition the money that we're passing on to you on you having a local workforce component to it. There are things like that that we ought to be working on. That I think part of what part of what the the violence that we're seeing is is from folks who don't have a future they have confidence in. And if we can find a way to, with workforce development, with career development, to, to make improvements in that respect, I think that that's part of what's going to be the, 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 the solution to the violence problem. Well so in the category, timing is everything. On the way in, I was listening to NPR, and NPR was talking about electricians. And we, we are 7% down, and they expect to be 7% down year over year going forward, and that doesn't include the new jobs from the Infrastructure Act, right? right? This is all the solar jobs, so they are already 7% behind, and that's only going to go ahead and make it worse. Um, I printed out the zoning rewrite. I've been anxious to talk a little bit about that and tie into my mustache, but you mentioned something, Lloyd, as you were speaking. I don't want to know what the connection is. We will. We're going to give it to you. Okay. We're going to give it to you. But but before I lose this train of thought, um, parking. Right? So I thumbed through this. The, the, the previous one was a lot of pictures. This is a lot of write, writing, a lot of geeky stuff on exactly how this is going to work. So in order for this to really work, are we considering what's written in here about reducing or removing parking? Is that parking requires? Is that on the table? Well, it's certainly on the table. I mean, it's, it's there, yeah. literally on the table. But, uh, yes, it's something that we're going to have to talk about. And, I mean, I, I'll just say you know, we've talked about parking requirements as they pertain primarily to apartment buildings and to residences. We've already had discussions about removing parking requirements in business areas and so on. But the, the real debate here is over, uh, like, apartment complexes. So it's directly related to cost, right? Just a regular sure. surface parking lot's roughly twenty five grand. You know, when you start getting into structured, it, uh, it's like fifty, seventy five thousand dollars $75,000 and up. Which are very, you know, basically these are doors. Per space. Per space. We need to clarify here. Per yeah. space. Yeah. Per space. Thank you. So, you know, if we can reduce that and, and bolster our transit facility, you'll be able to get a little bit more cost-effective construction and get a little bit more housing affordability going. Any thoughts on that? Yeah, well, um, as was mentioned, um, it is it, it, our last joint work session with the Planning Commission. Um, removing parking minimums was something that was uh, proposed by the consultants. It's in there. Um, and it's interesting, you know, one of the case studies that's often pointed to is Buffalo, New York, um, which eliminated parking minimums as part of a larger overhaul of their zoning code. And what they found is the vast majority of developments still included parking and in, in the same amount of parking. Um, where it seemed to have an impact was in mixed-use districts um, where people were building a mixed-use development that had you know, commercial on the bottom, homes on top, that um, were near transit lines or um, walkable to jobs. So, you know, of course, Buffalo is you know, larger than we are. They have more transit infrastructure. Um, but it's, it's going to be interesting for us to discuss both in terms of, you know, how do we project how much parking will still get built, which we know it will, um, what impact it has on affordability, as you said. You know, it's a huge cost for every unit of housing, as well as, um, you know, where does it fit into where our 
transit lines are and the reliability of our transit system, which is not as reliable as we know it needs to be by any means. I've had um, so much conversation about zoning over the, and I can't even imagine you guys. I mean, I went from knowing absolutely nothing about future land use maps and draft zoning ordinances and upzoning and R1 and density and parking requirements to this is like now part of the lingo of Charlottesville. I mean, it's, it's arguably, I mean, gun violence maybe is number one right now because it's more timely, but I would say upzoning is probably the key issue with this election cycle. We have so many in the community either rah, 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 super in favor or very disenchanted. I want to highlight two points and then get out of your way. One, Neil Williamson's watching now. He put this on Twitter two days ago. Um, he said, Mayor Lloyd Snook just suggested many believe a bait and switch with the new zoning ordinance that could destroy existing single-family neighborhoods. So it seemed, if we were kind of reading the tea leaves, that maybe you were losing momentum on this potentially. And then I want to throw Michael this to Michael. Was it about a month ago you mentioned that we cannot build our way into affordability um, on, on the dais? So just those topics to you, and then we'll kind of unpack perhaps Michael Payne first on, on this topic. Sure. Well, you know, I think it's always been part of the conversation in my mind is the idea that density is necessary but not sufficient when it comes to affordable housing. We know that zoning is one tool for affordable housing. It's critical, it's necessary. But if you're talking about 60% area median income or below, and in Charlottesville, over half of our city is 60% AMI or below, um, and in that case, you're talking about you know a salary of, say, uh, two teachers or two nurses with a kid. You know They're in 60% AMI. To reach there, you have to go beyond just zoning. You have to look at inclusionary zoning, affordable housing requirements, investments in community land trusts, um, other creative land banking, investment in nonprofits, and that you have to be really intentional about that if your goal is 60% AMI or below. Some of the data on um, zoning changes, which isn't apples to apples because it's major metropolitan areas where they've primarily done studies, but it's a 10% increase in density decreases rents by about 1% within 300 feet of where that built out 10% um, increase happened. And so when you look at how fast rents are rising, it's part of stabilizing the market because our supply and demand are definitely out of whack. But again, if you're talking about 60% AMI or certainly folks who are working minimum wage, $15 an hour, or living on Social Security or disability, um, you know, it's not going to directly impact them. So you have to think about how does this fit into a bigger housing strategy. So that's my point is I think when you just engage in this conversation with some nuance and dive into the complexity of it, you know, that's one of them. And um, it's not an argument that um, as we grow as a city, density isn't necessary. It's just that we have to be intentional about going um, beyond that and implementing our housing strategy, which includes that discussion and analysis. So, Mayor Snook, Mayor Snook on this. So <clears throat> let me address the specific comment that I made last uh, on Wednesday. Um, I want to be real clear that I am still very much a fan of the missing middle, the uh, townhouses, the duplexes, triplexes, and so on. The, and the issue that I've got is with the all of the attention being paid to the, the density bonus for affordable housing. 
And let me be real specific about that. The proposal it right now is that in, let's say, in, a, in an RA zone, which is the, the most uh, is, is, the, is the least dense zone, uh, you would be able to build four units, three units by right, four units if you preserve the original structure, and up to eight, and up to eight units if all of the units are affordable. And so uh, what this has done by putting this out there is created the fear in a number of neighborhoods that, uh, first of all, in RA zones, you'd be able to have eight affordable units on one lot. On, in RB zones, you could have 12 affordable units on one lot. Uh, and so the fear is created, oh my goodness, every one of my neighbors could have a 12-unit apartment building on, uh, on their property, and that's going to change the character of my neighborhood. What I talked about when I talked about bait and switch, uh, and this was actually not a phrase that I first used in that meeting, James Fries actually first used that phrase in that meeting Wednesday night, and it's not new with him either, but the, the, the overall sense is when we were being given the future land use map two years ago, I know I personally, when I argued in favor of the, the increased density that was implicit in the future land use map, I bought the idea that was being given to us that the result would be we would have townhouses and duplexes and things that would still look and feel like houses. They would not look and feel like apartment buildings. And uh, you know, if, if you figure that the, the largest house in a typical neighborhood is going to be 3,500, 4,000 square feet, question is what can you put into a 4,000 square foot building? How many different uses, how, how, how many different units could you put in? I mean, you could certainly put in four units at that point. Could you put in 12 units? Could you put in eight units? I don't think you could. You would have to be building a larger building at that point. It would change the way, it would, it would get away from the idea that was being given to us two years ago that, what, that this would all result in places that looked like houses, that felt like houses, a residential neighborhood that did not feel fundamentally changed. Now. Uh, so, so if you've got a system where you're going to have, let's say, 12 affordable units uh, on a lot, you know, two houses away from you, uh, and suddenly that feels different for you, that constitutes, some would say, a bait and switch. You sold us on this plan on the idea that everything was going to feel like a house, and this is clearly not going to feel like a house. The catch is, and what I was really talking about Wednesday night, the catch is that that kind of 12-unit building like that is not going to be built, at least not without massive city subsidies that we can't realistically afford to pay. Uh, and here's the, the, the reason for that. Building costs are still higher than the amount of rent you can get for an affordable unit. And so there is no possibility of building a complex of entirely affordable units unless you are going to have a subsidy from some place. 
And I've talked to John Sales recently, for example, the, the, the housing uh, expert at the CRHA, who's familiar, really familiar with all these voucher programs. He says basically the rental assistance vouchers are just not going to be available for this kind of a project. And so the only way it's going to happen is if the city un uh, underwrites this construction. Are we going to underwrite construction for a private for-profit developer? I doubt it. Are we going to say, well, okay, let's, let's let PHA or CRHA uh, or some other corporate entity like that, let's let them buy that lot and develop it uh, that intensely. Would we subsidize that? Well, in theory, that, that might be possible. But if we are looking at that kind of subsidy as our only way of getting the thousands of additional affordable housing units that we need in Charlottesville, now we're talking about potentially $100 million worth of expense uh, or more. The estimate was given five years ago. It would be $152 million to, to try to, to build all of those units with city funding, city subsidies. I just don't see that happening. And the consequence is that we've got both people on the pro-affordable housing side all enthusiastic about these the, the, the possibility of these 12-unit uh, buildings going into otherwise re single-family residential neighborhoods. And you've got people on the other side saying, I don't want those kinds of things in my neighborhoods. And they're getting all worked up about something that I think has zero chance of ever actually happening. And so part of what I was asking for and part of the, the, the spiel that I went into Wednesday night is, can't we at least start the conversation from a more honest place. Well, I think um, if I could please build on some of, you know, what I was talking about earlier. Um, I talked about this at the Planning Commission meeting as well. It was interesting attending the, the Regional Housing Partnership Summit. Um, you know, I was on that panel yeah, on, on missing thank middle you. housing with Arlington. The moderator was questionable, right? <laughs> I think they, the they, were, they were perfect. Keith is <laughs> a moderator, yeah, for those that don't know. It was the mustache. Um, <laughs> Lord. But, um, well done, boy. you know, Ar Arlington passed um, their ordinance, which um, allowed more development in single-family zones. Again, didn't ban single-family housing, just allowed more to get built. And it was more um, aggressive and allows more height and intensity than what we're allowing by right under our current draft proposal. And one of the things at that panel that was an interesting discussion is hearing about in Charlottesville, us talking about how we're pursuing that density increase, but we're also being really intentional about the affordability component and recognizing that you have to be intentional about getting to 60% AMI or below. And Arlington wasn't doing wasn't it. Doing and it was interesting, that mm -hmm. contrast. And it was also interesting, um, the head of development at Blacksburg um, came up to me afterwards was talking. He was like, you know, what you're doing in Charlottesville, we want to emulate that. That is really creative and interesting that you're being intentional about affordability in that way. And um, there are some people from other localities who are looking at kind of where our draft is at and seeing this is an interesting model to do it a little bit different than Arlington. And um, the other thing that uh, the chair of uh, the Arlington Board of Supervisors, when they passed that, one of the things they said was that growth isn't good, bad, or indifferent. It just is. When you're in a, a place people want to live, growth is going to come to you no matter what, and you have to figure out um, you know, how you're going to plan for it. And just, I guess, big picture perspective as well, something 
from the conference that uh, stuck with me is at the end at the board meeting when Chair Ned Galloway was talking about UVA's um, presentation and UVA um, was talking about North Fork and maybe they would build, you know, all market rate. And they said, well, you know, you can't please everybody. And, you know. That was the response from the UVA team. That was the response from UVA's team. And, mm -hmm. you know, Ned was just reflecting on it. And he was like, that really stuck with me. And I was thinking it really, you know, it made me question, you know, who is that everybody? And in this case, it's nurses, teachers, so firefighters. I'm so glad you're going to say that. I'm going to interrupt you here for a second. So the land trust, as you know, I chair the land trust over here. We just closed our 23rd unit in, the, in Outmark County. And as you were talking, to talk about who the 65% AMI, that's who we're, we serve for 23 homes. We've created $8 million worth of property for $625,000 worth of grant money from, from Albemarle County. Places that our buyers are working, I had my executive director do this. I'm a housing improvement program, I'm a public schools, Charlottesville Public Schools, City of Charlottesville, City of Albemarle, City of Enrico. We've got Election, Farmington, UVA Hospital, UVA School of Medicine. These are all the 23 folks, 1.5 persons. The median income is $49,000, to your point, which hits 65. 30% were male, 70% were female, and we generated $8 million mm -hmm. worth of permanent affordable housing. And the only thing that we needed, we added another four hundred grand to that of our own money, and the city of Albemarle, excuse me, the county of Albemarle kind of turned some red tape into green tape, letting us go mm -hmm. ahead to do this. And, um to get into you know the weeds a little bit on the um, you know the affordability bonus that's in the current draft is I do think that's really important in two areas is one um, you know I, I think we have to keep in mind that as part of the zoning rewrite we're eliminating the special use permit process largely and a lot of the affordable housing developments that we've seen where they came through uh, the Charlottesville Affordable Housing Fund and, and got awards was a project like MACA uh, and Park Street, um, which wouldn't have been allowed under by right zoning and could only happen through a special use permit. And it was a little bit higher intensity than the surrounding neighborhood, but the thought was that the um, benefit of the affordability was worth it. It's something that, you know, is part of growth and change. Um, but because we're going to eliminate under the current draft a special use permit, you need to have the ability for when um, nonprofits go through the affordable housing fund and get an award, they need to have lots that they can build on. And they need to be able to both have it pencil out and be um, um, a sufficient number of housing units to kind of meet need. Um, and so I think it's critical to you know maintain some of that flexibility if we want to see affordable housing development. And I agree, we're never going to subsidize every theoretical case. It's just through our $10 million a year when they go through that process, will they have lots um, that they can build on? And I know, you know, even if you talk about you know, eight units or so, and, you know, especially if they were buying multiple lots. You know, you look at the uh, construction at Friendship Court happening now, which um, is really nearing completion. Um, in my mind, that really looks residential scale. It looks like townhomes. Um, I live um, near uh, the, Mo the Sunrise Mobile Home Park that Habitat redeveloped that's um, townhomes, single-family homes, the majority of which look like single-family homes in terms of scale massing. And there's a few buildings that are a little bit um, higher, uh, apartment buildings, but they're almost at the same height and massing scale of um, larger single-family homes we have built. So I think there is a way to do it where it still really feels um, 
uh, residential human scale and both in terms of height and massing is pretty similar. Um, there'll be more people living there. There'll be people who are more likely to be renters and, you know, there is some change there, but I think it's an important part of um, um, how we get to where we want to go, I think. So, thank you, Michael. So, Lloyd, this panel that I moderated, I asked one question, Michael answered it. Will this eliminate single-family zoning? No. So that is... Well, it will eliminate single-family zoning. It will not eliminate single-family uses. There you go. So w explain that, because that's a misnomer, because when the article came out... I don't out, think that's the root of what people care about here. Well, I think I'm, the I'm, root of what people care about is the change of neighborhood character. I think the root of what people care about is too much density, not enough infrastructure to match the density. I think the root of what people care about is transportation, traffic, parking, congestion. So I'm attempting to clarify a, 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 a headline on the Wall Street, I think it was one of the, one of, I think it was the Washington, Washington Post, Post, yeah. Washington Post, that Arlington eliminated, uh, excuse me, yeah, Arlington County eliminated single-family detached homes. And that's not no, the case. Not at all. And I just, just want to get that out there because people do think that. So there's a portion of folks. You can still, once this gets adopted, right, you can still do a single-family detached home on a single detached lot. If that is not being eliminated. Correct. All this is giving you is an opportunity to do more. Correct. Here's, here's a question from someone who I believe both you guys have heard from, Benjamin Heller. Mm -hmm. Okay. Mm -hmm. um, when council approved the future land use map, members assured worried residents that it was mainly about gentle density and house-sized multifamily projects. Several members expressed reservations about aspects, aspects of it being very permissive, but ultimately said it was very easy to dial back in the zoning than to dial up. Since then, the Planning Commission has, if anything, pushed up to and beyond the future land use map and the draft zoning ordinance. The commission and the steering committee are heavily weighted toward activists, so that does not surprise Benjamin. Here's his question. At what point will council reassert control over the draft zoning ordinance? Can you assure residents that the promises given during the future land use map debate will be honored? Let me start off by addressing the, the metaphor of dialing back and dialing up, because I actually talked about that on Wednesday also, that uh, what we were told six months ago, it, it really wasn't so much at the future land use map stage, but certainly was, was being discussed, and that metaphor was being used specifically last August and September, where the, the notion is that we've got a number of different methods, a number of different tools by which we can increase the density. It, uh, you know, lot coverage rules, like the height of the building, like you know, the minimum lot sizes, things like that. We have a number of these different, and, and one of them, by the way, is the elimination of a parking requirement. Uh, so all of these different tools, and if you think about it the way you might think about a, a, a volume control on a, a board like, uh, like deals with all these microphones here, uh, you can turn one of them up to three and one of them up to five and maybe one of them up to seven and the result might be that you get a different kind of picture or a different kind of sound coming out depending on how you, how you tweak those things. And the idea was we're going to give you, they said, we're going to give you about five different tools, five different knobs that you can turn 
And if you turn them all up to five, maybe you get one result, and then you say, okay, well, we didn't like that one exactly, so we'll dial some back to three, and maybe we don't get enough housing, so we turn something up to seven. Uh, but my sense of things is that I think at least in some of these categories, they have started the knobs up at 10. And I would suggest that it is not, it, it is easier to dial something up than it is to dial it back. That people, first of all, people get a sort of a vested right in expectation that they're going to have have certain rights and certain abilities, uh, and if you dial back on those, they get upset, and sometimes they file lawsuits about it. That's number one. Number two, uh, once a house goes in on a street that changes the character of the neighborhood, we can't undo that. We can't blow up the house and start all over again. So if we end up with something I use an example. There's a there's a house that was built or the constru construction began over on Booker Street, that oh, yeah. is enormous oh, yeah. by comparison to everything else on the street. And the only thing, I mean, it, it didn't. I don't think it actually actually ever got completed. I actually have some inside information on it, but I'll let you finish. Okay, that uh, for various reasons, the the thing, you know, the structure got built, and I don't think it ever got completed. But it's, it's like two or three times the size of any other house on the street. And people are saying, this is nuts. This is changing the nature of Booker, uh, of, of Booker Street. Uh, and so I would, that's the kind of thing where we don't have the power to go in and blow it up, to return it to what it had been before. And once that kind of process has started, it changes the character of the neighborhood. So dialing back is not as easy as it might sound. It's, not, it's almost more like a ratchet kind of effect than a true dial. And um, so that Booker Street property is very similar to the Jewberry Hotel, a little fine monument in the middle of uh, downtown mall. Um, what well, we, should get, we should get Michael's answer on this. At what point will council reassert control over the D DZO, draft zoning ordinance? Well, Can I'll you say, assure I'll the residents that the promises given during the Flum debate will be honored? I'll say as a, a, a statement of kind of principle in terms of this discussion is I think all sides need to dial the temperature back a little bit. This is an extremely complex issue. There is uncertainty. A lot of these are very technical questions. And you can't think or make good decisions in an, uh, in an environment of fear and accusations. And I think on all sides, we've just kind of got to dial the temperature down and think about, you know, in terms of, in my mind, in terms of affordability, how do we get to the best outcome that will advance that? And it's not easy. There's uncertainty. Um, you know, to that question, one, I would say if you compare where the residential districts are now to the first draft, the buy right height and density was reduced. That happened already in this process. So that was dialed down. I think if you're talking about residential districts and you're talking about allowing the height that's in the majority of them, which is at the same height um, as a single-family home, and you're talking about um, triplexes, even you know a smaller apartment complex that's up to 8, 10 units, you see that type of development in the city already that is very much at the height and massing scale of um, single-family homes. And under our existing zoning, you already have teardowns of smaller, more affordable homes into, you know, giant McMansions that are changing the character of neighborhoods. That's the status quo right now. And I think, in my mind, you know, when it comes to the residential districts, 
I don't think it's a bad thing to allow at a same height and massing as a single-family home, allow some more renters, allow homeownership for people in a duplex or triplex, and um, think about, you know, what is the benefit of allowing more nurses, teachers, city employees, the people who serve us in restaurants, to be able to live in our community? And I think you can absolutely do that without um, completely changing the character of a neighborhood. Or, and I think you know, most of what we're talking about is not something that's like a 10 or 12 story building where I think you have something like the, the, uh, the standard that towers over West Haven. Um, you know, that, that, that's a different situation. And, you know, and there's a question, you know, I raised at the joint work session about, uh, um, around Friendship Court with the resident-led redevelopment is happening. Everything around it will be by right up to 12 stories, which will, um, you know, completely shatter over that community. Um, you know, I think there's there's some difficult questions there that I think we're going to have to dive into. But I think when you're talking about, you know, and just in terms of general principles. And the final thing I'll say is, again, just a broader kind of philosophical approach. Is I was reading something um, just yesterday. It was... Um, Eugene Williams, he, um, who of course you know was a civil rights activist involved in desegregating our schools and created dogwood properties, and it was meeting minutes from 1991 when I read the city downed yeah. um, the majority of the city to R1A, and he said, "Mr. Williams stated that he felt the city has failed to adequately educate those who will be affected by the proposal." He stated he believes the plan will be detrimental to the city, will perpetuate discrimination in housing, will segregate schools, will hurt, will hurt small building contractors, and uh, will continue to uh, uh, create an atmosphere where people view affordable housing as ghettoized. And it's a difficult question, but you know what? One of the things I think about is how will our decisions and words age once we get through this process? And there are. It's not easy answers. There's a lot of complexity. But I think we just have to kind of step back and keep in mind that's really what our goal is about. Um, so if I could respond to something in, in particular that Mr. Heller talked about. He said, when will council reassert control over the zoning draft process? First thing to understand, purely technically, we don't have control at this stage because the scheme is the Planning Commission develops the ordinance and brings it to us. One of the concerns I had in 2021 was that Council had been so disengaged from the process that was going on at that point, both for the future land use map and for the comprehensive plan generally, that by the time it got to us, the cake was already completely baked, and there was no interest on the part of councillors to revisit any of these issues. In part, some of the, you know, we had two, two councillors who were going off. They wanted a final vote before they got done. I understand that. Um, but there are a number of deficiencies in the comp plan, for example, that I had wanted to, to have us address, like the failure to discuss economic development planning at all. There's about one paragraph on it. There are a few other things like that. Uh, the future land use map plan, I said at the time, we shouldn't be doing this kind of analysis unless we, had been, unless we were willing to say we had done a lot-by-lot lot examination, or at least a neighborhood-by-neighborhood neighborhood examination of it, which council never did. Uh, and so I, I, one of the things I was trying to do when I was talking a couple nights ago was to say that 
council needs to actually I should go back a little bit more uh, I had asked specifically that we have the discussion about module one uh, on Wednesday night because we don't have a process at this point for us to talk about it on council's primary agenda until it gets brought to us, and it doesn't get brought to us until after the planning commission. So, is that the generation of the work session? That's, that, that was that was one of the reasons why the work session was way the way it was. It was intended originally just to be module two. two. That was always going to be talked about. Well, problem number one was module two didn't come out until about three o'clock in the afternoon that day, so there really wasn't time uh, for anybody to have comments on it. But the other piece of it was that I really wanted council to begin to engage right now rather than waiting until the whole process until say, until the cake is already baked and comes to us which is why some of this discussion is necessary i think that what we're seeing is uh, as we look at at the overall scope of what this zoning rewrite is going to do uh, the the change the basic change to allow up to 3 units or up to 4 units on a, a an ra parcel extended citywide would allow for the townhomes and the duplexes and the triplexes and quadplexes perhaps uh, to to be spread citywide and that in basically takes us from 10,000 I mean right now we've got 10,000 lots basically 10,155 lots that are zoned for single-family only and suddenly that now we've got 10,155 lots that are zoned for up to three or four so that would already be a huge change by itself if you want to add in a couple of extra units in RB and RC that's fine it's the and most of the growth in in our housing stock is not going to come from duplexes and townhouses the the analysis uh, well, I should say, uh, let me back up. Most of the unit, most of the lots that would be changed would be changed into townhouses oh, or duplexes. There you go. But most of the units, per se, are likely to come from more development in the, the, the corridors and the, the other, other, the CX uh, design, uh, and NX and all these other kinds of zones, not RARBRC. And, um, yeah, I just think in the, the the you know the residential lower intensity residential zones, um, I think it's important to just allow affordable housing development there, and to again try to really be intentional intentional in um, recognizing you know what what does it look like to be creative in allowing a community land trust or habitat or PHA to really create homeownership opportunities. And I agree with you. You know, none of those are going to be you know your eight story you know massive building, um, and um, and it's very much, in terms of the process, it's very much, you know, a, a document that is draft, not finished. I know we've got, I'm sure we'll have more work sessions. I hope we have as many as we can, to be honest, because yeah. it is, it's very, there's a lot. And, in fact, at our last work session, it was like 20 minutes before the meeting that <laughs> Module 2 was even released. So we haven't really had a chance to even discuss that in detail. But I think there's still a lot of, um, a lot more to do on council, city, consultant ends in terms of, um, uh, specific lots you know some of the things you know I'm considering is are there areas we're missing and I use this as a, a example that I think is just really you know kind of hits at it are there a, an area like the mobile home park off Franklin where you have a high percentage of 
uh, lower income renters that you're going to change to medium or high intensity zoning designation and will that create a uh, much higher risk that someone buys the property evicts all those residents and then builds new housing for you know young professionals that's going to happen and but i think it it it, it very much depends um, parcel by parcel question and it depends how we structure what was defined as sensitive communities in there um, but it is if, if we don't take a lot of care there's a risk in those areas um, as well as it's interesting the majority of our discussion from the public and among council so far has primarily been and understandably about you know residential um, and we really haven't even discussed the commercial corridors um, and the yep. mixed use corridors in any detail um, which I actually think is where the biggest changes actually are yeah, right. not residential those are the areas where a lot of them will all of a sudden be double the height or more and um, I have a lot of questions about uh, part of module two is about um, scaling setbacks I've read through um, the affordability part of module two but not that in detail, um, as well as you know, getting a sense of what actual incentives are there to get actual mixed use in those corridors, or are we just going to see extremely large Class A office space? And I also think there are you know, some questions on specific parcels. There are questions of infrastructure. For example, the intersection of um, Mead and East High near where Jack and Jill is, that weird you know, stoplight thing, the current zoning draft zoning designation is for uh, you know a buy right up to ten units all along there, and then that existing infrastructure, it, I just you know it's out of whack. And you know there's the, the legitimate argument that um, you know investment in terms of building something usually comes before infrastructure build out in you know cities across the country. Um, so, you know, it's not an argument that, you know, you can't build anything until every possible infrastructure question is answered. But in an area like that, I mean, you do need to wonder how much does that make sense, especially when we don't have a clear timeline for when smart scale would get to that corridor or the fact that that is all currently single-family zoning surrounding, you know, 10 stories by right. I think there are, um, to me, some of the biggest questions there are in those mixed-use commercial corridors, actually, which we haven't really even dived into. And if I could touch on one other thing that Mr. Heller raised, that is the one of the things that is clear to me as somebody who is just trying. I mean, the the, the, the planning commission planning commissioners have already spent a lot of time, uh, kind of getting obsessive about details, and I have not. Well, that's what they're supposed to do. That's what they're supposed to. Do. That's what, absolutely. And so, what? But so what happened? At least in one occasion, Wednesday night was I mentioned the concern of the people on Grove Road, for example, where uh, that entire corridor from Meadowbrook Heights Road down to Melbourne, uh, the entire corridor, roughly 45 houses, was going to be designated uh, RB, I guess. And I just sort of counting up the number, because it's going to be RB, it could be a 2,500-square-foot lot, and dividing out the number of square feet and the, and the number of lots and so on, you could, in theory, have 315 lots in that area, uh, and each one of which would have some rights for development, and each one of which, uh, in theory, could have its own apartment building and, and so on. Well, clearly, that's a ridiculous outcome. That would not happen. But part of the, the problem is that if you're trying to do a plan that assumes that everybody is going to be as responsible as Michael and I would be, uh, <laughs> that's, that's not good law. That's not good zoning practice. 
And, but when, when we started talking about that, the, the, the planning commissioners who had gotten into the weeds with it could say, well, no, that's actually not going to happen because you've got to have a 40-foot wide uh, parcel here, 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 and here. No, you couldn't divide it that much. You might be able to get double, uh, perhaps even in some cases, three units, uh, three lots created, but that's it. Well, there are two points to that. One is that I freely admit that I haven't spent as much time as everybody else in the, on the Planning Commission has with these details. But the second part of it is that we haven't educated the public about what this actually is going to mean. And so we've got this situation where everybody, as I said before, on one side of the equation, everybody is all enthusiastic about, oh, we're going to be able to do all these wonderful things. They probably can't. And on the other side, oh, my goodness, everybody's going to be able to do all these terrible things. They probably can't. And we're not educating them or us so that we can all make an intelligent set of decisions. I think that's 100% what's happened. And it's what Michael has said, that there's fear percolating in the community, and fear's got people not thinking rationally. Um, and that's why he said he wants everyone to just take a stand back and be patient and let this play out. But if you could change everything, anything or one thing in this upzoning process, what, what would it be? Would it be the communication? Oh. Would it be the messaging? If you could do this all over again. Because I feel like, and, and this was not you guys, okay, this was just the process in general, the messaging was extremely convoluted. I guess I would say, certainly communication is, is, is one thing. I don't necessarily want to be trying to, to cast blame. You're not trying to throw shade. Yeah. I get that. I get uh, that. And part of it is, again, the, the process, let's not lose sight of, of the fact that we have made so much progress in the last couple of years mm -hmm. in this discussion compared to when everything blew up five years ago because nobody could talk in public about these kinds of issues. We've made a lot of progress. And yes, there are things that are concerning, and yes, there are things that, that we need to educate the public about better as we educate ourselves better. Uh, I continue to believe that horror stories or horror scenarios at either end are, are just not going to happen. Partly I'm an optimist. Uh, but if we can work out the education piece so that everybody else gets that same sense of comfort level with it all, we can hopefully dial down the temperature. And just quickly then. Sorry. Uh, okay, we keep rambling. No, 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 no. no. Um, That's what this is about. Um, in terms of the process, I guess if there's something I would change is, I mean, we've been at this for coming on eight years. So it's been long and drawn out. But I think if there were things that, you know, in hindsight I wish could have been different is one, even though we had a lot of community engagement, you know, five years or so ago in person when this blew up, it was harder to do community engagement in a pandemic environment, not just because it's virtual, but because people are preoccupied with pressing concerns of their survival health. Um, and to have had... Um, you know, throughout this process, more of a permanent city manager and for more of this process to have even had a, a neighborhood development services director. I think those things combined with kind of the local national turmoil of a pandemic and, you know, you know, where politics has been, not just locally but nationally the past several years, create a lot of noise where, like, this process, even though there were meetings happening, it was being put out there, it just kind of a lot of people blew past them because there was so much other louder stuff going on. 
So you gentlemen know for me to sit here and be quiet takes a lot. <laughs> so and we got a lot to cover. And, and a short we've got amount of a time lot to cover. And, and the reality of why I've asked you two gentlemen to come sit here is because of the long format of the show. Right? So we have an opportunity to take a deep dive into it. I just want to throw something out. Uh, again, I'm going to focus a little bit as the chair of the Piedmont Community Land Trust. I would encourage folks that are listening and watching, go take a look at the units we built on Nassau Street between Nassau and Franklin. There's four, right. three duplexes, six units we've built. Back to your point about process, it took me about a year, a year and a half, to get that thing to the point that we could build it and get money from your jurisdictions to go ahead and do it. So we went ahead and built six units, true net zero. These folks are not paying any electric bills or heat, heating bills. We only receive $60,000 per lot to go ahead and do that. That 60000 will continue to give forever. We just had our first resales of that where folks are walking away with fifty, sixty thousand dollars $60,000 of money that they never had before and walking up the ladder. But those homes will be permanently affordable. If you want to know what it's going to look like, just drive by those lots and take a look at it. Um, so much and 18 minutes left. I'm going to try to pick up the tempo um, with some questions that folks are asking here. We've been covering on the talk show the CRHA um, News, 74 units, Dogwood Properties. They voted on Monday. I believe you were there. Yes, I'm on the CRHA yeah, board. He's there. On the, he's on the board. Monday, you guys voted to purchase uh, $10 bucks. the deal. You need five from CIP, um, Capital Improvement Program. That's on the agenda for Monday. The remaining five from a donor, NBC29 reports them as anonymous. We get a little insight. We know that's Riverbend Development. So Riverbend Development is offering a $5 million zero-interest loan to CRHA to help purchase Dogwood Properties. Eugene Williams started this company. Keith Woodard bought this company from Eugene Williams, little research in 2007. Guys, walk me through this here. So this, this is how the layman sees it, and, and I'll throw it to you. The layman sees it as a well-capitalized developer, and Keith Woodard is getting $10 million bucks. The assessment on this was 960000 Keith Woodard is openly... What do you mean the assessment on what? The, the value of this portfolio is $960,000. No way. Oh, excuse me. Excuse me. $9,600,000. 9600000 is the, the value. There's a $400,000 delta with what CRHA has offered the $10 million and the assessed value of the entire portfolio, which is $9,600,000. That's right. I, I was told it was, it was the assessed value was like thirteen million. That's my understanding. Is it thirteen? That yeah. was that's my okay. so, so. So are we talking assessed value or appraised value? Two different animals. I, I, I think I was told assessed. I don't know. Well, I, I mean, okay, I was told. So we should get some clarity on this. I was told it was nine million six hundred thousand. That's beyond the point. Here's just, how here's how the communities look at it. and I'll get out of your way here. That Woodard, who needs um, maybe some zoning flexibility with Cherry Avenue and the Kim's Market property, has got a deal that he's doing with CRHA seventy four properties. Okay, Riverbend Development is a for profit developer that's doing a five million no interest loan here. Folks are wondering if this is a little scratch our back, we get our back scratched later on some other projects. I could, I could tell you for a fact okay. that's not the case. Okay, please. But um, in, I guess in brief, the idea is um, Anthony Woodard, uh, Keith Woodard's son, has taken over. Um, I think they're assessing kind of the future of their portfolio as well as the fact that uh, next month there's going to be uh, interest rate uh, 
refinancing related to interest rates they're going to need to deal with. Yeah. And I think if you are to, if you look at what those properties would sell for on the market, I think it's substantially higher than $10 million. Would agree with and that. CRHA's idea was they saw this as an opportunity given that they're thinking about selling this portfolio, which would convert it all to market rate um, if just sold on the market where these are been kept affordable. CRHA will, one, be able to preserve affordability um, in perpetuity. Two, they'll have gotten a pretty good deal on a portfolio that thinking mid to long term, they're going to have an opportunity to, over time, um, build more units on and be part of a bigger picture redevelopment plan. And third, as tenants move out naturally, they're not kicking anybody out, they can replace those tenants with someone who has a voucher, which will provide housing to people at 0 to 30% AMI, and it also provides more operational income to CRHA compared to um, public housing that doesn't have a voucher, so it shores them up financially. That's kind of the, the big picture idea, and it's also, in my mind, if you're looking at if all those units were converted to uh, market rate and you're trying to replace it, you're going to be spending more money than $5 million. Assessed is $9,600,000. Appraised is $13 million. Yeah. Okay. So there's the clarity. Assessed $9,600,000. So, so back to market value, the appraised value is the market value. So you're getting a $3 million deal. Well, on the city's end, I was speaking to you as a board member. Well, CRHA is getting a great deal, considering $5 million is no interest loan here. So I'm going to throw something out here. Did you have anything? Well, I'm just going to say, I I think that we also, implicit in your question uh, is that nobody does anything altruistically. That's my point. And that's and what I, the average I, person thinks. Okay. And I think that we have to understand at least a little something about, I mean, I, I, know, I don't know the folks at Riverbend. I know Keith somewhat. Riverbend's um, corn capsules, right. for those that don't know. Right. Yeah. Uh, and I don't know that I've ever met the man. But uh, I just my, my sense of, of Keith Woodard is, okay, he's got an investment of X number of dollars. He's going to end up with a profit for all of this. He's getting out of the business that his son doesn't want to continue in. They're at a point where they've got to make some decisions that would v- significantly increase their costs of co- cost of capital. They don't want to have to do that. This is a time to get out. The question is, do they want to sell everything unit by unit to somebody for $13 million to maximize the benefit? Or do they want to get a package deal and the package deal to the city, number one, uh, gives them, it gets them out of the of the portfolio with some profit, perhaps not as much as they could otherwise, but a profit. Number two, it allows them to do good work in the community, which I personally believe is important to, to the Woodards. I think so too. Uh, and, I agree with that. And it, 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 it's just a, you know, it's a classic win-win. And in a win-win, that necessarily means that somebody isn't taking the last dollar off the table. So I can tell you, Anthony walked up to me after our missing middle thing, and you're pretty much spot on. But then there's a third component also, too. There's also a tax advantage of the kind of doing it this yeah. way, which is just good business from, from that end of it. Look, um, we're talking about rental units, and, you know, I've got to keep my land trust hat on because that's what, I, that's what I'm <laughs> supposed to do, uh, at least uh, before they kick me off the board as a chairperson on it. We're talking rental, 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 rental. What are we doing for the ownership component in this? What are we, well, uh, what, what are we going to help the ownership end of it? Because rental's great, but ownership actually builds wealth. This is a real estate show after all. Um, so what, what, do we, what do we got in this plan? What do we got coming up to help those folks? 
Well, in, in CRHA, I'm looking at it. There's nothing to buy under three hundred fifty thousand dollars. Right. And CRHA is part of their long-term plans, and potentially with that portfolio, is looking at a few rent-to-own opportunities. But to your point, the vast majority will be rentals. You know, that will just be a little adjustment for them. So I'm asking the question of the council: What are we going to do to help the ownership component? We seem to be talking a lot about about rentals. Is there any plan or any thoughts? On that, maybe I'm making a plug for a little bit of money. Yeah, no, <laughs> I, I think I think we, we we definitely are within our affordable housing strategy. Um, it calls for a specific percentage of that ten million dollar a year to be spent on um, homeownership opportunities, and so I think we're going to hopefully <laughs> when we are fully implementing the housing strategy and we're firing on all cylinders in implementation, we'll see the investments match that goal, and I think. It will primarily happen with investments in nonprofits who operate in that space. Um, obviously, Habitat's a big one, but I think there's a huge opportunity, to your point, and I'm not just saying this because you're on the board, but if you look at national models for sure. homeownership, if you can combine a land bank that can begin to acquire land in a city and pair it with a community land trust to build housing, you can make a transformative impact to provide permanent homeownership opportunities that will pass wealth down for multiple generations. And I think that's where we need to get as a city. I'm glad you brought up land bank because, as you know, Maggie Walker Land Trust in Richmond is the land bank for Richmond and Rico and I believe now Chesterfield counties on that end of it. So um, hopefully that's the path you guys take because that's the best way to hit permanent affordability. One of the things that um, I, I want to highlight and give Councillor Payne an opportunity to, to offer perspective, one of the things I most agree on that you campaign and politic and platform for is the pilot program with UVA. Um, I think it's courageous, the right thing. I hope you do it more. This is a comment that's come in here. I'm going to read it verbatim here. UVA is at once again the engine of growth for this area. $2.1 billion of city property doesn't pay taxes on. Seville would not be what it is without UVA, but neither would New Haven without Yale. And Yale pays $12 million a year in a pilot program. Mr. Payne has called for UVA to make pilot payments. Mr. Snook, when asked about UVA's impact, um, has not offered some perspective on the pilot payments. So the viewer would like to know um, where do you stand on this, and then the viewer would like to know for you how can we keep the momentum going with pilot payments? Do you want to go first on pilot and UVA? That's fine. Uh, the fact is that state law specifically says that we have no power to talk about pilot payments from state entities. And so unless either the state law changes or UVA decides voluntarily that they want to start making payments to us of millions of dollars a year that we have no power to, to compel, there's nothing really we can talk about. I, I would love to have the authority that many other states do, but we don't have that authority. I think Mr. Payne is using his influence to potentially rally the populace to put some pressure on UVA. I don't want to speak for you, well, but I believe that's what you're trying to do here. Yeah, I guess I'd look at it in a different way. I mean, I get, you know, some people think it's just tilting at wind, windmills because um, it's true. We don't have the legal authority to pass any resolution or ordinance to force UVA to enter into a pilot or payment in lieu of taxes program. Um, but if you look at case studies of almost everywhere it's happened in the country, it didn't happen because the locality required it. Almost none of them can, except for, I think, maybe in Connecticut, where their state legislature changed state law. 
but it happened because there was community organizing right. from Pressure alumni, from the donors in the community to force, not force them, but make them feel like this is something they need to enter into voluntarily. And that's how it's happened, is voluntarily across the country. And I think that if, if it's ever going to happen in Charlottesville, and I'm actually cautiously optimistic, I think if we're thinking 10, 15 years from now, I think we will get there to, in, to some extent. Um, that's what it will take. And UVA um, is, yes, it's a state entity, but around 10% of their $2 billion annual operating budget comes from the state. The rest isn't. Yeah. So the rest of that can be used. And they also have a $14.5 billion endowment. Yes, most of that is restricted for specific purposes, but there's an unrestricted account that totals $2 billion, a portion of which in their strategic planning is said to be used for um, community partnerships and community benefit. That's a pool of money because if you're looking at their tax liability in the city, you've got about $1.6 billion of assessed properties just in city limits. They would pay about $15 million a year if they paid the same rate as everyone else. Um, if they're even paying just a portion of that, you know, 8 or $10 million a year, it's feasible for them. And I think when you look at the fact that they're tax exempt, they continue to buy property, the three-party agreement, which was entered into then they move it over to the Then they move it over to the foundation. They're moving properties back and forth, as you well know. Right. And we have no clarity in terms of the yeah. three-party agreement. Um, when they make those transfers, um, and the final point is they've made their commitment to affordable housing, um, which is important, and they are donating land, which is of real value, but they've said they're not planning to make any financial commitment, and the problem for us is if it's going to be affordable housing, they're going to need to partner with a nonprofit who will need low-income housing tax credits. For that to be successful, they're going to need city money. We don't have three, four, five million dollars just lying around. It's going to have to mean we're going to have to put off an already existing affordable housing project in the pipeline if we're expected to pay for it. So what you're doing is working. Believe it or not, it is working. Because we've seen that in the Regional Housing Partnership with UVA's presentation. They maybe didn't actually use the words, but if you're watching body language and watching the questions from the room, they were getting it. And I think they're now realizing, guess what? they got to come to you to get a rezoning done. Because they moved it from UVA to the foundation, which means they need to sit in front of you. So a little bit of politicking and pressure on them, I think. You know, I, I can't promise it, but I think the wheels are turning because if they can't get that project rezoned, and the only way it's going to get rezoned is they're going to have to kick in some, not money to you guys, but money for infrastructure. You know, they're going to have to bring something to the table other than land. And I think those light bulbs went on. I don't know, Lloyd, if you saw that also. Well, and let me just say, I am delighted to have Michael raising the issue. I'm, uh, he's doing know, a good job. There, there is nothing negative about that. Uh, the the The... The problem that I have is when people come to me and they say... Force them. Force them to or don't do this because you right. should have the university fix that problem instead. And at some point when we've got a short-term problem, we've got to fix it ourselves and we can't wait for the university to decide they're going to yeah. do something maybe so, 10 so years the, down so the road. So the conversation is, and let's not force it, <clears throat> the conversation is how about kicking in some money to help? And just, yeah, you know, particularly with the um, housing commitments. And just real quickly, I kind of look at it similar to the living wage campaign, which the locality and nobody had the ability to force right. them to do it. For years they claimed they couldn't do it. There was years of sustained organizing. Eventually it happened. Eventually they didn't even include contractors in the living wage, and I think it's going to be a similar thing that happens with pilot. But I do think somehow in some form we will get there. So I'm a little disappointed in what UVA did. They actually disbanded the community engagement yeah. team, which I was on. Um, and I actually told 
senior man, senior executive team that that was a bad move. Um, they're going to put it on the developer. That's great. But I think for them to drop their community engagement team, and I've said it publicly, just did it again, which was a very bad move. You know, they're not helping transparency and they're not helping trust in the community on the end of it. But, you know, hopefully, you know, these developers that are submitting these things are going to need subsidy. They are not going to be able to do it on their own. It's not going to pencil out. So they're either doing LIHTC or they're getting federal money or they're doing something. But these projects, I think, at the end of the day, are not going to pencil out. Um, guys, three, four minutes left. Michael Kotchis coming on the show, um, the I Love Seville show. I think he's done a hell of a job. Um, your take on uh, Chief Kotchis and what he's done, what, two, half, two and a half, three months on the job so far? Well, the first thing I would say is that he absolutely has the right attitude as far as getting out into the community, as far as his walk and talks. Uh, he's, he's got, uh, he's, he's stepping into a, a real set of problems with, with youth violence and drug violence and whatever else may be going on and trying to get a handle on that. And one of the most important things that he's done is to begin the process of working with the feds and working with the FBI and working with Albemarle County and everybody else to try to work collectively to solve some of these problems. And I, I just, I think so far he has uh, hit a lot of the right notes, and I don't remember any wrong notes that he's hit. So I'm, I'm very pleased with hire. Mm -hmm. And um, you know, there's a lot of tough work ahead. Um, I'm, I'm glad to hear their continued emphasis on community policing, um, really engaging and getting to know people in neighborhoods, and not doing. Um, you know, stop and frisk and aggressive, you know, broken windows policing where you're harassing people, but to really get to know people, as well as, um, you know, his commitment to implement a Marcus Alert system, um, his continued recognition that we need co-response models with mental health care workers, and his point that at both the gun violence forums I've attended where he was at, you know, he said, if you expect that the police alone can solve this problem in terms of gun violence, I'm going to tell you, we can't do it alone. We're going to do our job. We're going to do our piece of it. But it has to be all of us collectively as a community investing in neighborhoods, investing in kids, investing in mentorship programs. To Lloyd's point earlier, investing in um, uh, economic opportunities and providing a sense of um, you know, more hope and opportunity in these neighborhoods that historically has been too lacking. So, Do we think um, the city manager search... Um, do we have any idea when that may be completed? Do we think that could happen before potential second terms, or is this a clear-cut second term? No, this, <clears throat> this, is, this decision is likely to be made in May. Okay. Wow. May or June. Of this year? Yeah. That's, that's news. And that's the search, obviously. Well, the, no, the, no, the, the hire, you're the saying. The search is already underway. You're saying a hire. Uh, yeah, I'm saying the hire. Good. Well, and if it, and with the expectation that the person would be with us by the beginning of the school year. Wow. You, you do we have a short list of names already? No. Nope. Okay. So that's news right there. You want to repeat that, Lloyd, one more time? Well, that uh, with, with the consultant, the, the, the recruiting firm that we've got, uh, we will actually begin our active part of it. Sure on April 17th or soon thereafter. We said, let us get let us get through the budget before you start asking council to have more meetings. We had nine meetings in the month of, of March. Uh, I calculated that in the month of March, I will have spent 70 hours 
on council business other than the meetings themselves. Oof. So this this is the wrong time to expect us to do anything. But be ready. Well, I was just thinking that you've got you've got a zoning rewrite that you're trying to get done by June nineteenth. We got the budget. We got the zoning rewrite. We've got all these other issues coming and coming at us full steam. Now I understand you're not doing much lawyering. <laughs> well, he's well, still working hard. I see yeah, it every day. I'm, I'm, a lot of that gets done at two o'clock in the morning. Yeah. There you go. So, <clears throat> but my point is that that uh, it's going to start in terms of our interviewing candidates probably in the month of May. Uh, we're expecting that they will bring us candidates by mid-May that we will interview. We will hopefully make a decision uh, soon thereafter, whether it's the end of May or early June. But when I was talking with, um, with the consultants, I was saying, listen, I've I've got a trip that I've got planned uh, to go to a, a wedding of the son of an old friend out in California for the last week in May. Is that going to be a problem? He said, no, your part will be done before then. Good. Your interviews will be done. So before. by the end of the summer, we will have a new manager. That's the expectation. And, and then Michael Rogers works alongside the new city manager with transitioning? We'll see. Okay. Yeah, because we, at this point, Poly Hire, the firm is – um, we've met with them to discuss kind of like what we're looking for, priorities in the next city manager, and they're doing their first part in a national search, but we haven't gotten to any short list of names or um, no Or even anybody. a long list of names. Or a long list. <laughs> we don't know anybody's applying. Or, or, or anybody's going to apply at all. Right. Um, I mean, I would think this would be a pretty – I would think this would be a, a strong job here. We're well, talking the opportunity about to work with Lloyd Snow and <laughs> what do you think? And potentially but, for but, another but, four years. But along those lines, it, it'll be It's a quarter-million-dollar job here with benefits and perks and everything. But it's what comes with it. And this last year, year and a half, couple of years, is really your governance has really gone off the charts. So I would imagine your list is going to be pretty healthy for folks. Yeah, what, so, what are the criteria, some of the short list criteria that you're looking for in a city manager? Be able to walk on water. <laughs> Take a few loaves and some fishes and feed the hundreds. That's right. Okay. Um, anything, did you, did you suggest... Uh, diversity, equity, inclusion, anything along those lines? Think, Were you looking for experience? I mean, what? I think certainly experience. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I mean, there's no one thing, but I think one someone who is able to come into a community that has a ton of community engagement where you're going to be under the spotlight. A lot of localities aren't like that. Yeah. Um, as well as someone who is willing to be creative in terms of looking at affordable housing, economic development, um, in a way that is maybe not the norm for every single locality with a real focus on, um, you know, what can we do in terms of community wealth building um, and including more people in the growth and wealth of Charlottesville. So let's get out there for the, let's talk real quickly about the process. We're over time a little bit here, but is this going to be transparent, right? Are, are we, or the last time that was, you know, the behind the doors decision. So what is the public going to know about this and when are they going to know? And, about and it? a follow up to that is, is Michael Rogers a candidate? Michael Rogers done well, a I don't think job. I think we don't have a list yet of anybody. Well, he's we, the, we don't he's, know. Okay, can he be in the mix? He can be. Absolutely. Would would he? You guys have got a chance to know. Would he want to be a permanent city manager, or does he like to be a consultant city manager? I can't speak for him. Okay, I haven't okay. talked to him. Yeah, but the, he could be in the mix. The way the process works, it's very blind to the council. Once the once right. it goes out to the the consultant, it's very blind to you guys. You guys don't know until you get the. the we'll list. get the list of who we're interviewing. Yeah. But back to the public conference, when you get to that interviewing thing, will that be public knowledge or we're going to have to ha talk about process because it's important? 
Well, I can say two things. First of all, that one of the things that Poly Hire has been doing or will be doing is like focus groups, including people from the community. Mm-hmm. I, I I don't know the details of, of yeah. who they're talking to and what they're doing, but these are the same folks who did the police chief search, and I think they did an excellent job there. Yeah. And so I have confidence that they understand what they're getting into with Charlottesville and how Charlottesville wants Good. to be more engaged than most places in, in the country, frankly. Uh, I expect that we will, perhaps similar to the um, to, to the process with the police chief, have some kind of a process at the end where one or two finalists, however many we, we sort of get down to, might might be available for the same kind of interview session that we had uh, when we did our, our police chief choice. Um, I frankly, I don't remember whether we ever made a decision about that. Do you, do you recall? I remember we discussed it. No, well, and, and, and one of the considerations there they brought up is, um, you know, do you want to have public interviews where it's just one person at a time rather than a panel? So, yeah. you know, the details aren't settled, but there's certainly... But there will be commitment. some public engagement in this process? They, the, the public will know... Because it doesn't have to be, right? doesn't have to be. That's yeah. right. We, we do it blind. Uh, we don't want to. And one of the reasons why, and we said the, the when we did any, the last couple of choices... Uh, where we were, frankly, working under the gun. We had to do something right away. We didn't have sure. time for a sure. public engagement process, that, that we would offer a public engagement process. And one of, that, one of, the, that pe- one of the pieces of that is going to be uh, that the public will have a chance to know and to hear from and to comment on before the decision is made uh, on the, the last couple of finalists, whether it's two, two or three, I'm, I'm not sure. But. So end of summer we'll have a new city manager, and it is not going to be blind. There will be some open to the public yep. process. Good. Thank you. Why don't we close with this, guys? Um, re-election. Why should folks vote for you guys? Michael Payne, why should you get re-elected? Why should folks vote for you? Sure. Well, I think there's just a lot of unfinished work that we've started um, that's left to get over the finish line and fully implement. I think particularly the past year we've seen um, it's kind of gotten lost how much change there's been in terms of collective bargaining including a climate action plan for the first time in the comprehensive plan, uh, affordable housing strategy implementation, the fact that we've matched that commitment of at least $10 million a year, made significant process and uh, progress in resident-led redevelopment of Friendship Court um, and uh, public housing um, across the board, um, transportation, the regional transit governance and vision studies, the um, studies on our natural gas utility, electrification of city vehicles. I just see all this work underway that we've started, some of which we've seen successes on, but we've got to get over the finish line, and I hope that I'm able to bring some institutional knowledge and experience having been there for the past four years that will help see those through and not kind of have the turnover we've seen in recent years where nobody stays there long enough to see anything through. Well said, Michael. Same for the mayor's side. What I would add, and... Uh, part of what Michael said is part of what I will be saying when we get around to talking about the, you know, finish the job, finish, you know, let's do the implementation, as I said earlier, implementing all of these plans that we've been working on. Uh, I want to talk about one piece of it, though, and that's the, the sort of the orderly process that I think we've tried to bring to city council in the last couple of years. You know, I, when I was at Seaville, had their Movers and shakers in Charlottesville, they had a picture of me, and it was a very short little blurb. Lloyd Snook, 
four words, shorter city council meetings. Now, the shorter isn't the important part, but the important part is that we are able to communicate with one another, we are able to talk with one another, we are able to figure things out before we get into the meetings so that we're not having to, to just kind of ramble on expressing our thoughts. You know, I, before every meeting, I will have talked to basically every counselor on the side to say, what, what issues do you have? What can we work out uh, and, and, and get that to, to work? So uh, that's been an important part of the process and bringing order to, to all, of the, uh, all of the things. As individually, you know, one of the things that uh, I've tried to do, of course, I'm a lawyer by training, uh, sort of get into the weeds with the collective bargaining ordinance, get into the weeds with the PCOB ordinance. We have adopted uh, the most comprehensive, potentially most comprehensive PCOB ordinance in the state. We've still got to implement it. We've got, you know, that, that's a new challenge. We've basically appointed a wholly, almost wholly new PCOB uh, just in the last month or two that as they begin to get get their feet under them, I'm hoping that that will work out well. So th these are things, a climate, action chain, a climate action plan I want to touch on just briefly because last night I got to say for the first time that we're actually going to do something I campaigned on four years ago. We're going to put LED streetlights out there. We're going to have that pay itself, pay for itself in four years. That's how fast that payoff is going to be. And it's something I pushed for four years ago. We're finally going to get some of these things done. That's the piece of let's implement the plans we've been making that, I w that is really driving my campaign. Guys, you guys are uh, appreciated. We really appreciate you. I mean, you, they spent 90 minutes with us today answering questions. So I'm, I'm going to keep it short because we're beyond time. I just wanted to pers personally say thank you for joining us here. Thank you for, the in for accepting my invite. It's always out there. We're going to do this again as we go through. This is good stuff. And uh, let's see if April 10th the uh, Zoning Administration Review comes. That's, that's going to be the big heavy lift on that, how these projects are actually, to your implementation perspective, how they're actually going to get implemented. The over-under on his mustache bet is June 19th. We didn't talk think, about that. I, I kind of purposely didn't want to do that because I don't. <laughs> Does it wanna, get approved before June nineteenth? I, I don't, do I don't want the bet to influence their decision. So I just. Uh, I, I don't <laughs> think the mustache is going to influence Michael Payne and Lloyd Suggs' decision Damn. making. I They're thought. not thinking so about I've your got, mustache. I've got a bet with, with Neil Williamson that th this will not be adopted before June nineteenth. Not by council. Okay, so if it's got to be adopted by council, if it's not adopted, if, if that's if that's your bet to be adopted it has to by, be council, by council, there's that, no that chance that will not happen. Well, before yeah, I think all we could say is this: is the original timeline. This was supposed yeah. to come out like two weeks ago. Yeah. So yeah. So you worry? They're basically saying you're going to win the bet here. That's what they're you know. Saying. I have, Neil's watching. I, right I now, have right. a history on this show of losing. This is the first bet he's won in four years. This <laughs> may be the. That's interesting. This has been on my, my face since 1985, so that, this was a big bet for me to, to make. But I didn't think you guys were going to make the 19th. But, you know, you might now go ahead and go, hmm, and might get this happen before that. I don't, I don't want to see you without a mustache. Yeah. His wife has only seen him, what, for a couple months? Yeah, my children have never seen me without a mustache. Yeah. My oldest daughter's 37 years old. Well, I, I would hate to have people running, screaming down the street, so... Lloyd, I've been waiting for you to zing me, and it took it took forty two uh, ninety minutes ninety minutes, 90 minutes. To, to to get there. Thank you, Lloyd. viewers and listeners. You're probably looking at um, two men here that are going to be on another term on council. Here, you got four guys, three spots. 
these two, I would say, certainly front runners to win um, spots on council next year. Institutional memory match. Yeah, yeah. yeah. they There's know what's no, up here. No guarantees. To no guarantees. For That's right. For sure, no guarantees. Judy Primary Wickeller, is June 20th. June 20th is the Democratic primary. We'll know what the 20. Well, to Michael's point, an independent could still get in the race. So I gotta. I gotta so make we'll sure know about clear. the mustache and. <laughs> yeah. And, uh, I love Seville's show, guys. He's up in 45 minutes. Thank you for joining us. Take care. Thank you, gentlemen. I got five pages of notes. Thank you. <laughs> that was good. Thank you. I feel like we almost thought that was fair, right? It was fair? Oh, yeah, yeah. Okay. I, uh, I was just reflecting.